You're listening to the Department of Energy Joint Genome Institute's Natural Podcast, a podcast about natural products and the science and scientists of secondary metabolism. Welcome back. This will be episode 12 of Natural Podcast, and it's our conversation with Nadine Ziemer from the University of Tübingen in Germany. Like me, she's a genome miner and has been involved with the Anti-Smash and MIBIG projects, and I found her review in Natural Product Reports on the evolution of genome mining and microbes with Mohamed Alangeri and Tillman Weber to be a really valuable piece that shaped my thoughts about the history of genome mining and the directions it might take in the future. I highly recommend it. I'll link to it in the show notes, which I'll remind you, you can always find at naturalprodcast.com. Uh, You should know we recorded this a few months ago when we were at the height of the initial spread of the pandemic in Europe. So if there are any kind of dated references to the news, that's why. But it was a really fun conversation, and I think you'll enjoy it. So here it is, episode 12 with Nadine Ziemer. Hey, Allison. Hey, Dan. So uh, we're back in our our far corners of the world. So, uh, yeah. That's right. Yeah, we're doing this from home and uh, my own podcasting setup. And yeah, yours too, Dan. You're looking very professional. Thank you. You too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Our big headphones. I'm, I'm sitting on my bed in Paris pointing a microphone at my face because <laughs> I didn't want to be in the other room where the kids are messing around because it's too late to be asleep already. Uh, but we're not just here to talk about us. Uh, we have um, a great person to talk to tonight. We have Nadine Ziemer from University of Tübingen. And did I pronounce your last name correctly, Nadine? Yes, perfect. Perfect. I've heard it in all variations, and I think that was perfect. I mean, I get that too. So, but uh, so so I'm, I'm oversensitive to it sometimes. Well, welcome, Nadine. What is the big picture for you in your lab? A uh, big picture. I want to understand how secondary metabolites evolve. Who makes them? Um, how do they spread? Why do they spread in a certain way from one bacteria to another? Um, how do they change then, and why are they really made? I think I think that's a question that a lot of people want to answer again from very different standpoint or from very different angles, right? Like um, the big question is that there are all these molecules around us all the time. We smell them, right? We 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 drink them. I mean, uh, secondary metabolites, nature products, uh, caffeine, all that stuff around us. Um, and we actually don't know a lot about them, why they're made, what's their role in nature, yeah. how are they, how have they been selected for, or how do they evolve, all that thing. So that's what I really want to understand. And then, of course, um, we can use that knowledge to actually use it in drug discovery, right? I mean, at the end, we somehow have the big goal of making that process a little more effective than it is now or a little more yet put more rationale into drug discovery by knowing what these things actually do and um, how they evolve. So Nadine, what got you interested in studying natural products? Mm, Like always coincidence, I think. Um, I I needed a job during college or um, university and I got this great job as a student assistant in the lab of Elke Dittmann, where I did my PhD later. Um, And she happened to work with nature products from cyanobacteria. So that's how I started. I loved the lab. I loved the topic. And I think 
what I like the most is just the interdisciplinarity of it. So um, it wasn't only chemistry or only biochemistry or genetics. Uh, it was also ecology. It was also evolution. It was kind of everything that makes science. And I think that's why I loved it. Yeah. And then, I, I feel a kinship with that answer for sure. That is that is one of the draws for me is secondary metabolism. We could do all kinds of wacky things in different areas of science for sure. Yeah. So so there's so many, and you meet if you go to nature product conferences, you meet people from all different fields. They all kind of have a different angle looking at these molecules for different reasons, and all have the but but there is one common topic, and if you then start to start to talk with these people about the same topic, but from so different angles, I think that makes it really exciting because you see how much you can actually learn about it. If you, if you look in, from, if you look into it from different fields and not just from, from one angle, right? So, so, I mean, if you would just be within the chemists or just, just be within a group of uh, evolutionary um, ecologists or something. So I think then, you always have a certain view on things and but if you talk to these people from very different fields you always get different answers different um different uh, angles and so when when people then start talking about it um you always so i always at least for me have the feeling oh yeah i never thought about it like that that's true so this field is always exciting because of that i think yeah what's an example where that happened where you your view was challenged? Good question. Um, I don't remember from my PhD too long ago, but um, I I just had have had an example where um, we looked at some topic that I'm working with about now, um, where I made a tree of different compounds and I looked at it from an evolutionary standpoint, where I really could follow evolution um, and I could see at certain times when within these biosynthetic gene clusters, there's gene fusion going on. And then I could see how the pathway gets streamlined and becomes more um, effective. And that's, that's how I interpreted it. And then I talked with it, uh, with, with my colleague, um, who is a biosynthetic uh, chemist or, or, or no, um, who's more working from the biosynthesis standpoint. And then I'm talk, I was talking at the same time, also with some Australian colleague who's working on structural biology of these compounds, and they had so they they saw the tree, and I explained them how I uh, would interpret it, and then he's like, "Oh yeah, that makes total sense because if that A domain there changes, and that would happen then." And I'm like, "Oh, you you see that in my tree?" And so it's just one example how how you can see the same thing and really interpret it very differently. For that example, was it the case where that, that colleague saw a potential mechanism for why there would yes. be this streamlining? Yes. Uh -huh. And um, just how one certain domain would change. And then that's why this domain, another domain also has to change. And that's why then um, something becomes more effective or something like that. So, so he could see really into this so or he could so 
he could look into the structure really seeing seeing that and I'm always just looking from the genes and pathways and what's happening there and he really saw this this structure and how that would make the make the compound faster or something like that so so that was interesting to see yeah biology is being this engineer that's constantly refining its designs but sometimes you know if you're looking at it from a zoomed out level or a zoomed in level you'll see different things yeah and I think you need to see all levels really right so um I mean we're scientists that always because there is so much we need to know I think we we really focus on one thing and we have to focus on one thing um to to really get into that specific but that sometimes makes you lose the big picture and I think if you then talk to people from different fields from with different views that really then helps you to get back to oh why am I actually studying that question we know each other I think uh I consider us as as something like scientific cousins uh so (laughs) we we both went to scripts together and um I worked for Brad Moore as postdoc and and you were with uh Paul Jensen and Brad Moore later too and and Brad later yes sure right Mm uh and um yeah so uh uh we worked on the Salidospora genomes that was a really fun project we had Brad on and he kind of waxed poetic about that the early parts yeah. of that project. How, how did uh, that postdoc where you, I know you really dug into the evolution of that system. Did that affect uh, the work that you're doing now? Yes. Yes. Immensely because um, so in my PhD, I was mainly working in the lab, right? Like I was doing genetics and um, I was very much into biosynthesis of these compounds. And I started a little bit about, about evolution, but not too much. And I kind of thought that's a little boring just being on your computer. <laughs> and then I went to Paul by chance again. That was like one of the lucky coincidences you sometimes have, right? Mm-hmm. You, he was looking for a postdoc and just wrote an email to, to everyone. And I'm like, oh, I'm looking for a postdoc. So that would fit. So I just wrote him an email and he's like, yeah, come as soon as possible. So um, I ended up as in, in Paul's lab and I noticed that this was a perfect fit for what I wanted, what I wanted to do, also studying evolution and the role of the secondary metabolites. Um, and this is Paul Jensen in the early two thousands, late two thousands. No, yeah, two thousand ten. Two thousand ten. Okay. Yeah, you're a young faculty. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm. Yeah, I just got a faculty position like three years, four years, four years ago, I think. Yeah. Mm, okay. Yeah, Paul Jensen. What was the question again? <laughs> uh, I was just uh, asking if the the scripts research. Ah, yeah, how scripts. Before, yeah, uh, how that um, uh, sort of got you thinking about evolution. Yeah, so he started, and, and I started with the computer work, right? But which I had to get into first, and understanding trees, and he had this whole idea of of actually Neptas, this mm-hmm. computer program where you have which uses phylogeny to predict compounds. And um, so I really had to dig into all the different biosynthetic mechanisms and uh, into phylogeny. And I had to look at so many pathways and so many gene clusters. And um, 
later I looked in all these different cellulosepora genomes and that was great that you started that work. So I had some, <laughs> some gene clusters I could start on. So, but you started with two genomes, right? Right. And then we had like 120 or something. So I looked at all these 120 genomes and each of them have like, I don't know, 30 gene clusters or so. So I think I spent two years only looking at pathways the whole day. No, that like, yeah. And then um, I think that having all these very, very related genomes, right, on their 16S level, they're almost identical. Right. But seeing all these different pathways in them, that that really helped me to to get an idea how diverse these secondary metabolites are, even if primary metabolism seems to be very similar. But but how fast they they switch, and then you see really what what I thought was was really interesting, and what what still is what what I still think about a lot is that I never saw, well, I almost never saw little half or half pathways or truncated pathways or truncated gene clusters, right? You either see there is a gene cluster, and you can really see there is a gene cluster, or there's none anymore so so this evolution of really um when you don't need them anymore and when they're broken they just get deleted from the genome very fast that yeah that there's no selective pressure to keep them right yes and and how how effective this this process which is coincidental but it's very effective really is is i think you can really see in all these genomes that was fascinating i think mm -hmm. yeah um and uh, that was a uh That was a JGI community sequencing project yes. too, right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, I think that was one of the JGI's early uh, moves into uh, sequencing things for the purpose of looking at the secondary metabolism. I know. And it was Selena Spora were. Yeah, but they were in pretty good that. shape. It was only Illumina, right? I think but so. But we still had, had only a few contexts, so it worked right. pretty well. No, they're very high quality, yeah, for sure. It's yeah, it's um, then it's it's a marine actinomycete <laughs> yeah. bacterium. So they look kind of a little bit like fungi. They also make these mycelia. They're very um, kind of look like streptomyces as well. They have this typical mycelium, um, but they only grow in salt water. So right. um, we're thinking they're obligate marine. There's so far no species or no strains known that really grow in freshwater but they're actually pretty orange and they make black spores i think that's um that's and they make a lot of really cool compounds when you say orange what kinds of orange and then also what texture do they look like they look at the, i think the texture is kind of like um then do they look like They're, like they're a little a mold, bit like a fungi or so. Not really. They're usually a little bit waxy. They they sort of have this that's, orangey. That's, they're more waxy, pigment to yeah. them that are. I forget what the. But orange. they're really bright orange most of the time. Yeah, I mean, it's some kind of well, some kind of carotene kind of thing. Yeah, I don't. Really oh, so they're like a carrot kind of orange. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Oh, and then I also wanted to ask, you know, it sounded like you had to spend a lot of time in front of the computer analyzing these genomes. And that wasn't, didn't sound like that was initially something that you were excited about doing. Um, now that's all I do all day. <laughs> <laughs> so I noticed that yeah. I don't, I don't really miss the lab anymore. I mean, I'd, I've had fun working in the lab. That, that was a great thing too. And I always thought that's what I want and I can never think about just only looking at my computer and not having the excitement about experiments. And then I actually 
got into it. I learned programming. I looked at all these things on my computer and I noticed how much I actually can learn just by really digging into the data and, and understanding what's going on there. And um, now that's all I want to do. I don't want to stand in the lab anymore, like pipetting stuff together. Um, I get very excited about my experiments on the computer. Can you describe what an experiment on the computer looks like? First, usually it's a lot of searching the internet, searching literature, um, and making databases, because that's what I noticed is really a problem so far, that a lot of information are out there, but it's not like easily searchable or in, in databases where you can easily get information. Usually, in a lot of cases, we still really have to go through publications and get proteins and their functions and all that stuff. Um, and then that's the most, I think, the most laborious work. But also it's the work where you learn the most because at the same time you read a lot about the protein or the, the genes that you are analyzing. And then we're building phylogenies a lot, making phylogenetic trees and then trying to see if the trees make sense biologically so if 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 i can see patterns in that certain clades have certain functions um and if i can so follow evolution and see okay whenever a gene switched a function then or or yeah then i can see that in the tree and then a new clade gets up and then if i have then a protein i want to know the function and i don't know it later then i can predict the function because i know it's clading in the specific Clade, I think um, that's something that um, I think Dan used used that a lot as well, right? With sure. in warp drive or so for, for yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah, that's that's what you have to do to try to figure out what things are. You try to compare them to other things that you know about, right? That's, and then you just see if that if you can see patterns and if you can actually make predictions, and um, and then you get excited if you can make predictions. <laughs> It's not always the case, but when it works, then it works pretty well. And then that's pretty exciting for us. That is genome mining in a nutshell. Do you have a favorite genome mining example, like a mm. natural product that you found the mechanism for or the pathway for? I think my favorite example is still my first example from my PhD. Um, genome mining wasn't that well known. I mean, people did it, um, but so we were looking for a compound that is that was well known for a long time, the microvirgins. These are cyclic peptides from cyanobacteria. They have a weird tricyclic structure that's really unique. And everyone thought because of their structure and their unique um, amino acids and these crosslinks that they must be made in a certain way via these non-ribosomal peptide synthetases because they thought at that time that was the only way you make weird peptides but then we actually found out that these are made via the ribosome it's these are ribosomal peptide synthases and um at the time we didn't have a genome really so we kind of had to go through different ways it wasn't a time where you would get easily genomes for not a lot of money um so what we did is we found we, we looked at other other strains where the genomes were known and we found some proteins where we thought, okay, these might be similar. And when, then we searched in our, um, we, made, we made something called a phosphamide library, 
where we where you chop up the um, genome and then um, put pieces into vectors into bacteria and then you search for research for these these biosynthetic enzymes that we think that must be similar within the phosphate library and then we did still hybridization <laughs> we used we used um, probes from the other genome and we hybridized it at the time with radioactive labeled probes um, and then we I never thought it would work but we actually found phosmids and we sequenced the whole phosmid at the time with Sanger sequencing and really going from the ends and sequencing step by step the whole phosmid. How long ago was this? Found- <laughs> I wasn't that, I mean, it was long ago, but maybe 5,000, uh, 2006, <laughs> 2007 or something like that. But And we actually found the whole gene cluster that way. That's still crazy. And the, the crazier thing is we, we had these clusters on the phosphate and we just put them in E. coli and wanted to see if they made it. And they made tons of that. They, wow. they just made it. I mean, that was... That was good luck. I mean, I'm still proud of the, the the strategy, how we found the gene cluster, but that then that they then actually made the compound and a lot of that, that was pure luck. And um, I think at the time I couldn't appreciate or didn't appreciate how lucky that was <laughs> because I know how hard it to actually how hard it is actually at the end to get the compound expressed in a heterologous host, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, cool. That's that's very similar to uh, you know the story Eric Schmidt told us about um, his his rip uh, endeavors. So yeah, actually his his um, patellamid I think was yep. one of the first compounds that they noticed that is that this was made ribosomally and not via these non-ribosomal peptide synthetases, and that's why right. we had the idea that the microviridins also could be. Completely different compound, right? But that got at the idea, okay, if there's no non-ribosomal peptide synthetases that make these things, so maybe they're ribosomal. And so that got us thinking because of Eric Schmidt's work. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So we had you on the schedule to talk to us uh, way back when there was going to be a JGI user meeting. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> that, that didn't quite happen this year. But um, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you would have talked about? Um, I'm still not sure what I would have talked about. <laughs> um, because, You're one um, of those talk writers then. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, um, I got invited and I, and I thought that the JGI meeting would be the, the best um, meeting to actually start talking about the stuff we do now because we get more into the metagenome mining. Um, we start to build tools for nature product researchers that easily can identify secondary metabolite pathways in metagenomes, <laughs> which is still hard to do. We are um, mining a lot of environments to see really where there are environments with the most um, that that have the most potential to actually make secondary metabolites. Right. Um, what are some um, of these environments? Um, so, so we started with soil, but we also have in collaboration with other people. We have uh, lake sediments. Uh, we have microbiomes from different um, organisms, including the human microbiome. We just really want to look into different environments to see what is can we can we 
find patterns of of things that we can say, okay, these secondary metabolites are always there. Others are there. There's overlap. There's something that's everywhere, right? I mean, stuff like that. Um, and of course, it's hard to make a full story out of that yet. So we have some small little stories all the time. We have we we compared uh, three d very different soils in an, in the area around Tübingen that is almost next to each other um, and to see if, if it makes a difference. What um, If I really have to go to the Bahamas or to the tropics to get cool secondary metabolites or if it's not enough, if I just go in three very different sorts um, outside, my wind, uh, outside my yard or so. Also, what we wanted to look at is does it make a difference if I go today and tomorrow? Can I find different stuff? Right. Mm. Or um, so really, really answering some of these bigger questions. But I don't know how much I would have talked about that, because at the talk, you always want to make a full story. And so far, I have a lot of smaller stories that I still have okay. to kind of wrap up into one big story. <laughs> That's why I wasn't really sure what exactly I would have talked about at the JGI meeting. <laughs> What's your your gut feeling about that that sampling? Did you do you find different things on different days and in a few inches yes. apart? Yeah, very very different things. I mean, that's what I what I always expected because we know we know from from soil right that that communities change very much. Um, that uh, whenever it rains, uh, then then some some certain bacteria. A certain taxa come up that that are not that might be there but not as abundant so and as the community changes and also the secondary metabolite will change mm -hmm. that was my hypothesis and that is really what we can see but what i was wondering is if you have a certain community there's usually just one or two member within that community that might make a secondary metabolite, right? Or, or that makes a secondary metabolite with a strong antibiotic uh, activity. And so you would think that if there's just one member in a big community that makes a strong antibiotic, that this has a huge impact on the whole community. Right. Um, so maybe, maybe the secondary metabolite within a community are kind of stable, even if the community itself changes a lot because you have to be kind of resistant against that one antibiotic that is there, right? Otherwise you cannot grow or, or um, in that area. And, and stuff like that is really what we wanted to look at or that what we want to get into and see if we can see these things. Also, also it, it seems like not only in nature products, but in science, there is a lot of things that people know just because they always knew right? Um, so yeah. like you say, secondary metabolites are only in the upper part of the soil because uh, there's no ne ne secondary metabolites from anaerobic bacteria, something we know now it's actually not true. Um, <laughs> and a lot of stuff like that. And then also what people say is you have to go to diverse environments to get uh, more diverse secondary metabolites, stuff like that. Um, what we actually don't necessarily see so there it doesn't seem to be a correlation between biodiversity in taxa and biodiversity 
toxicity in um, secondary metabolites. So stuff like that. I actually want to put numbers on and see if, if these notions are true or if, if just people made that up at some point. What do you think it'll take to get there? A lot of groups working together, <laughs> having a lot of samples, um, sequencing a lot, sequencing a lot of um, environments, very with a lot of metadata, right? I think that's that's important. Really also having the same protocols and, and I think still really look Looking into standard standards, um, standard. How do you say standardization? Um, sure. Yeah, um, of of stuff like that that you really can compare different samples uh, from different labs, for example. Because we notice whenever we analyze samples from different labs, that already is a huge difference, which is just the batch effect because they use different yeah different uh, extraction method and stuff like that. So so we have a lot of data out there, but it's hard to really compare them and, and really answer questions that we have specifically with, with data that are public. Yeah. So the, the episode that'll be just before yours, we had Roger Linnington on to talk oh, about yeah. <laughs> um, NP Atlas and uh, um, we got talking about what it would take to expand on the existing technology. And uh, a lot of that was uh, around, you know, chemical identification technology, mass spec, NMR. And, um, you know, we talked about a little bit about what it would take to sort of start connecting uh, genomes and, and gene clusters uh, to, to molecules. And um, we didn't have any necessarily uh, home run ideas on how to do that tomorrow uh, because it, it does take uh, some improvements on things. So from your perspective on genome mining, what do you think it would take to improve on uh, the data side of things and sequencing you know, analysis side of things to really start to be able to identify cryptic gene clusters and, and what their products are? I think there's a lot of aspects, right? Like you say yeah. about the data side. So I think it started great with databases like MIBIC, um, which is a huge help for us right now. If, if I just remember when I developed NEPDOS, I really had to go again in, in the literature and just take out all these pathways by myself and look what they do. Now you have this database already there. Um, that might not be perfect, but this is a great start. Databases like, um, then I think JGI ABC also has already a, a nice overview of all these different gene clusters that that helps um i think on the data side people started with that now it would be nice if actually everyone would also submit their data to databases like that and so the developers don't have to keep their time and and um, keeping these databases up i think that would be important also funding for stuff like that i think would need to be really there because usually I get funding for new tools, but really to keep up tools and, and making them work for a long time for the community. I think that is still, still problematic. That would need to. Yeah. That's always a problem in academic software development. Yeah. 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 So, um, and then I think otherwise a lot of problems that we notice as well is for example, uh, taxonomy right it's always <laughs> always wrong so that we need a standard in that um because if i mean 
if if strains are related, they tend to make this more, or the chance that they make similar compounds are higher, right? We know that. So, yeah. but if something is called amyclotopsis, although it's, it is a streptomyces, stuff like that, or or even if the strains are called three different things over the course of time, um, that that really can make it hard to to follow certain in, in databases to follow data, right? So so that makes it hard. The same with compounds. I mean, if something is called very different, although it's practically the same compound, but just with a methyl group on it or something, um, but has a very different name, that also makes it hard for us to really collect data there. So somehow uh, databases like Nature Product Atlas or MIBIC, I think are a good start, but now we really need to move on also with depositing data in a certain way and also have a standard for kind of genome taxonomy. I think GTDB also started that, but I think taxonomy and, and, and uh, genomic data are still kind of a mess. Yeah. Se- sequence analysis is hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sequence, but um, because then some people use the NCBI taxonomy, other GTDB taxonomy, right? And, and so... It would be nice to have a standard there. Otherwise, um, I think a lot of time is just spent with with searching for data manually, which or, or having wrong data, wrong names for things. Right, right. That I think it could be better if, if that would that that is a challenge. And then otherwise, I don't know. On the on the, I think the the hardest part actually not is not on the data side, but it's still really the high throughput of of getting these clusters activated. So, so most of them are silent, right? Most of them are not um, produced under laboratory conditions. And um, really, it would be nice if there was just a certain molecular switch that you could put on to like get them all grown. But it seems like there's nothing like that, at least non-universal switch where you can switch on everything. So you, I think what we have to do more is really figuring out more about regulation and when, when they're really produced then we can more easily connect molecules to genes. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, yeah, we can we can do a lot with prediction and we can go very high throughput with that when, when we throw enough CPUs at it. But at the end of the day, you still want to prove things. You want things, you want molecules in a in a tube, right? At the end of the day. And so um that's that's a really hard part. Yeah, that's what we figured. So for us at least that's right now the bottleneck. I mean we have a lot of cool clusters and I think a lot of really exciting chemistry you would think, but now we just have to find it. And um, so then we try to heterologously express them, but that takes a lot of time to really get them to be made. Sure. Something that came to mind when you were talking about sample standardization, I heard from another scientist that I interviewed recently about how she was leading this team effort to sequence microbiomes of rivers around the world and that mm-hmm. JGI was being very helpful in being able to, to sequence them and, and standardize that sample processing. Do you see that as a way that JGI could help with natural products or is there another way that you think JGI would be helpful in this endeavor? Yeah, I think any kind of, I mean, that would not only be helpful for, for nature products, but I think for, for any kind of science, right? That I think that's, 
for anything that you want to analyze, if you want to really have big questions, if there's changes within different environments or if there's something different, even in primary metabolism or in certain SNPs or vi viruses or something, I, I don't know, then um, I think making sure that the samples are processed in the same way and really comparable and that the metadata are there, at least for people like me that also analyze a lot of, of samples from public databases, I think that would be really useful and helpful for everyone. And I think if like JGI can for sure help there. Um, I think it needs, it needs government institutions like that because who else would, would be able to do that, right? I think one of the things that JG will be able to do in the next little while is to really start thinking about how to um, create the kind of uh, community uh, to, to help with genome mining that, that I think we need that you were talking about. We, we, we do need the community to be able to come together. And, you know, in, in the past, we've had these monolithic databases, you know, NCBI and IMG that, um, you know, have a lot of data and really useful data, really useful tools, but are often very static. And uh, biosynthesis is kind of a different animal in that, um, you know, we've got hundreds of thousands of biosynthetic gene clusters that don't have a known function. And we need some way to get the community engaged to actually um, start exploring and figuring out what these things are. So that's, that's what's on my mind lately. That's perfect. <laughs> I think, so no database would really fit in that, but minor information, someone worked with that gene cluster in some certain organism and then just having some information like, oh, we noticed it's transcribed under this condition or something right like we never found the compound but we found that about that gene cluster would be helpful so we wouldn't start from scratch every time we we look at a certain gene cluster so you could get some information about it at least even if there's not a paper coming out because you don't think it's worth publishing but that would be great yeah sure 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 yeah all those having some mechanism to capture all that kind of information uh I don't know. It's not out there right now. And uh, yeah, probably needs to be. Yes. Nadine, it was really lovely talking to you. I think this has uh, been a great conversation and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm Dan Udray and you've been listening to Natural Podcast, a podcast produced by the U.S. Department of Energy Joint Genome Institute, a DOE Office of Science user facility located at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. You can find links to transcripts, more information on this episode, and our other episodes at naturalprodcast.com. Special thanks, as always, to my co-host, Allison Takamura. If you like Allison and you want to hear more science from her, check out her podcast, Genome Insider. She talks to lots of great scientists outside of secondary metabolism. And if you like what we're doing here, you'll probably enjoy Genome Insider too. So check it out. My intro and outro music are by Jazzar. Please help spread the word by leaving a review of Natural Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you got the podcast. If you have a question or want to give us feedback, tweet us at JGI or to me at Dan Udray. That's D-A-N-U-D-W-A-R-Y. If you want to record and send us a question that we might play on air, email us at jgi-coms, that's jgi-comms at lbl.gov. And because we're a user facility, if you're interested in partnering with us, we want to hear from you. We have projects in genome sequencing, DNA synthesis, transcriptomics, metabolomics, and natural products in plants, fungi, and microorganisms. If you want to collaborate, let us know. Find out more at jgi.doe.gov user-programs. Thanks, and see you next time. 